I want to say a quick hello to those of you watching on the live stream today. Uh, you may not know this, but for the last three weeks, we have been live streaming our Sunday morning services, and a couple of those were test runs, and now we're slowly getting the kinks worked out, but uh, we want to welcome those of you joining us on our live stream. Last week, we had people all over the world uh, tune in to watch our morning services. Uh, many of our missionaries were watching, and how cool is that, just to be able to extend uh, the influence and outreach of the gospel. So we uh, send a quick greeting to all of them, as well as my mom, who's watching this morning. Hi, Mom. <laughs> I had the privilege of uh, starting out in ministry, serving as a youth pastor for nearly 10 years. And one of my favorite games that we would play in our youth ministry was a game called Bigger or Better. How many of you are familiar with that game? Okay, I see a few hands out there. Bigger or Better goes like this. You break your youth group up into teams of students, and you give them all an object that they start out with, usually something small like a paper clip, and then you send the students out into the neighborhoods, going door to door, asking people who answer if they would be willing to trade you your paper clip for something bigger or better. And so typically it would go something like this. You'd go to the first door and you'd ring the doorbell and you'd explain who you are and you'd say, hey, would you trade me uh, this paper clip for something bigger or better? And they would say, sure. And, and uh, sometimes you'd get maybe a, a magazine, let's say. So then you take that magazine and you go to the next house and you say, hey, would you be willing to trade me for something bigger or better? And that house says, well, sure. And, and that guy gives you a shovel. And so now you've got a shovel. And so now you're walking around with a shovel. And you've got to trade that for something bigger or better. Well, it was amazing watching over the years the stuff that kids would come back with after an hour of playing bigger or better. I remember times kids would be coming back with couches. I'm not kidding you. You'd have 10 kids walking through the neighborhood carrying this giant couch. And, you know, bigger or better, right? They got the couch. All right, you win. The, the, church, uh, the church property guy wasn't too excited about that, but, you know, you had to deal with that later. I remember one year, uh, I was judging a round of Bigger or Better, and a group of students came back, and they had four tickets to that week's Minnesota Vikings game. Can you believe it? I, I actually think the kids who brought the George Foreman grill home were the winners that night. <laughs> I had to get my Vikings dig in, you know, I had to, I, sorry, I just had to do it. Bigger or better, it's a great game, a lot of fun. But here's the thing, as I thought about that game this week, bigger or better is not just a game reserved for teenagers and youth groups. In fact, I think if we're being honest about it, many of us here today still play the game bigger or better on a daily basis. Bigger or better, in fact, is really at the heart of the American consciousness. Now, we don't call it by the name bigger or better. We use terms like upward mobility or keeping up with the Joneses or the American dream. But the idea is essentially the same. That the goal in life and, and to pursue joy in life means to get bigger and better and more stuff. And it's the accumulation of more and more stuff that will lead to joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. And so we pursue things like education so we can get a good job, so we can make a lot of money, so we can buy a nice car, so we can buy a big house, so we can go on fancy vacations. And many in our culture would say that that's the point. That's the American dream. That's living life to the full. 
It's very interesting. I'll never forget the day I began to question whether or not the American dream can truly fulfill. I was a junior in high school. I came home from school one afternoon and there was a message on our answering machine from my youth pastor. He said, Jason, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your friend also named Jason, your friend Jason took his life last night. We're gonna be having a prayer vigil for him at church this evening. Jason was a senior in high school. And I remember going that night and walking into our youth ministry room at Wooddale Church and there were 200 students there huddled in groups, bawling tears of grief, sobbing over this friend of ours who had taken his life. 200 kids from some of the most affluent suburbs in the Southwest Metro, Eden Prairie, Edina, Minnetonka, Hopkins. Kids who had it all, mourning the loss of an 18-year-old kid who, by the world's standards, had everything you could want. Came from a wealthy, upper-middle-class family. Had a plan to go to college. Had been accepted to a prestigious university the next year. He was popular in his school. Had girlfriends waiting for him to call every weekend. He had his own business. He, he would buy used sports cars, fix them up, sell them. His bank account was full. He drove a brand new Mazda RX-7. An 18-year-old kid by the standards of the world who had everything. And I remember sitting there that night thinking to myself, how could a kid like Jason, who had everything, take his own life? And it's very interesting, Jason's death forced my friends and I to really wrestle with some deep questions. His death forced us to face the reality of our own mortality. But more than that, his death forever shattered the myth that ultimate joy can be found in the stuff of this world. For if a kid like Jason couldn't be happy with all the toys and resources and friends and popularity, then who could ever be happy with all of that stuff? Now, tragically, my friends, Jason's death is not at all unique in our culture today. In fact, this past week, you may have seen on the news, the United States Congress in a joint subcommittee came out with a study titled Long-Term Trends in Deaths of Despair. The United States Congress reported that mortality from deaths of despair today far surpasses anything seen in America since the dawn of the 20th century. Deaths by suicide, drug and alcohol poisoning, alcoholic liver disease are on the rise at a rate of 90, since 1990 have increased by over 50%. The study says the combined mortality rate from suicides and alcohol-related deaths is higher than at any point in the last 100 years. People in our culture today are dying of despair. In a time where there's more affluence, more technology, more resources, more education than at any other time in the history of the world. And yet people are despairing of life. I did a Google search about this and came up with article after article. Fortune magazine, why white middle class Americans are dying 
at an alarming rate. NPR, the forces driving middle-aged white people's deaths of despair. It goes on. The Washington Post, Americans face a rising tide of despair. We have a duty to act. Atlantic Magazine, the middle-aged white Americans are dying of despair. The New York Times, the American, the age of American despair, are deaths from drugs and alcohol and suicide, a political, economic, or spiritual crisis. We live in an age with more pleasure, more education, more affluence than ever before, and yet more and more people are still looking and longing for true joy in this life. Friends, the American dream was codified in our nation's consciousness from the very beginning. Many of you will remember our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. But of course, friends, even our founding fathers recognized that the pursuit of happiness could only truly be obtained by building that pursuit on the solid rock of a relationship with God and by adhering to his word. As we saw last week, apart from him, all is vanity, meaningless. This was the lesson that Solomon learned over the course of his lifetime, a life of wealth and privilege and status and stuff. Solomon lived the American dream more than anyone else in history. He had it all. He had all the pleasures this world could offer. And at the end of the day, Solomon discovered that apart from God, all the stuff of the world was vanity. As Ian Provane says in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Solomon's life is the life of many men in our culture. The carrying through of great projects, the building of personal monuments, the exertion of power over many other human beings, the amassing of wealth and the possession of many women, what does it add up to? A chasing after wind. A chasing after wind. Solomon says it was all meaningless. Well, this morning we're going to continue to look at Solomon's testimony about his pursuit of joy in the stuff of this world. You see, Solomon was incredibly blessed by God, blessed with wisdom, blessed with material wealth and prosperity, blessed with kingdoms. And yet Solomon turned his back on God and chose to live life on his terms in pursuit of the stuff of this world, looking for joy. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes later in his life, looking back on those pursuits, realizing that at the end of the day, they were all dead ends. They didn't lead to true joy. True joy was only found in a relationship with our creator God. This morning I want to look at three of these dead ends that Solomon pursued as he sought true joy in this world. Three dead ends that I think we too will recognize are dead ends in regards to the American dream of finding joy in the stuff of this world. The first of these dead ends that Solomon discovered was the path of pleasure. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Solomon describes how he went on to pursue pleasure looking for true joy in this world. Solomon said, I said in my heart, I come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, a veil, a mist, a vapor, meaningless. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Solomon begins his journey for joy in the stuff of this world and the pleasures of this world, heading to the comedy club. Maybe laughter, maybe revelry is where true joy is found. And like so many in our own lifetimes, James Belushi, Chris Farley, Robin Williams, discovered that laughter and comedy don't lead to true joy. So Solomon leaves the comedy club and he heads to the bar in verse 3. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Maybe, maybe it's going to the bar and drinking away the vanity of this life where you'll find true joy. And sadly, Solomon discovered what so many of us know through our own experiences and the experiences of people in our own lives who have fought the demon of alcoholism, recognizing that alcohol can never lead to true joy. It's just a temporary mask that covers up the, own, the despair in our own hearts. So Solomon turned from the bar he said, well, if comedy and if alcohol don't lead to true joy, well, well what does? Well, maybe it's, it's projects. Maybe, maybe if I build grand monuments and, and great gardens, maybe the luxuries of these things will lead me to true joy. And so in verse 4, Solomon goes on, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born to my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon had everything. First Kings tells us that there was so much silver in Jerusalem in the days of Solomon that there was more silver than there were stones on the ground. Solomon had it all, palaces, pools, gardens, parties, servants. And he says it was all vanity. And I want you to notice, friends, in this section, how often Solomon uses the words I and me. I did this, and I did that, and I pursued this, and I pursued that. It was all about me. And I'll tell you something, friends. Some of the most miserable people you'll ever meet in this world today are the most selfish people you'll ever meet in the world. People who live their lives all about themselves all for me, and what's in it for me, and what can I get out of this existence? Leads to misery. It leads to despair. And I've traveled all over the world, and I'll tell you something. Some of the most joyful people I've ever met in this world are those who have the least, those who are willing to give away their lives 
for the sake of others. See, the Bible tells us that's where true joy is found. Solomon came to know that too. But he went on to continue to search for the things of this world, seeking joy, seeking pleasure. He goes on in verse 8, I got singers. I didn't just have music, I bought the band. Both men and women, not only singers, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. First Kings tells us Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A concubine is a servant used for nothing more than sexual pleasure. Solomon knew sexual pleasure more than anyone who ever lived in this world. And yet he says it was all vanity. He goes on in verse 9, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He pursued the path to pleasure and all of the stuff of this world and he had wealth and palaces and gardens and servants and singers and all the sex you would want and at the end of the day, it was all meaningless. When I read this passage, it reminded me of a yacht my family and I saw when we were in Door County a month ago on vacation. $300,000 yacht parked in Sister Bay Marina. Never enough three. Makes you wonder how the guy didn't figure it out after never enough one and never enough two. Maybe the $500,000 yacht he buys next summer will fulfill. Never enough four. Because it's never enough. The stuff of this world, the pursuit of pleasure... The pursuit of joy and the stuff of this world never satisfies. Solomon said it was a dead end. And so Solomon says, look at if the path of pleasure leads to a dead end, well, where can I find joy? Maybe, maybe I'll find joy in the drive for degrees. Maybe joy is found in the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. And so in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12 through 17, Solomon goes on, I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. In other words, friends, listen up here, because you can't do anything I haven't tried. And I pursued wisdom and knowledge. In verse 13, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now, friends, the wisdom that Solomon is talking about here is a worldly wisdom. The, the word in the, in the Hebrew is chokmah, and, and it refers to technical skill and aptitude and experience and good sense. And certainly, friends, there is a kind of worldly wisdom that exists that can be known by believer and non-believer alike. God, in his common grace through his general revelation to the world, has allowed us to attain wisdom and knowledge about the ways of this world. 
And so there is a knowledge that can be gained. And Solomon says there's value in gaining this kind of knowledge. In America, we often pursue this kind of knowledge through the attainment of degrees. And so we graduate from high school, and then we go off to college or technical school. Why? Because we want to get the degree. Why? Because if we increase in knowledge, it will lead to satisfaction and joy. And if that degree doesn't work, well, we'll go get another degree, maybe a master's degree or a doctoral degree. And we pursue knowledge in the things of this world. Now, there's nothing wrong with pursuing this kind of wisdom. I'll never forget when I was in high school, senior year, I wanted to drop out of high school and go into full-time missions work. I said, Dad, I'm wasting my time with school, you know? I mean, if I just quit school, I could go off, I could serve Jesus the rest of my life. And I'll never forget what my dad told me. He said, Jason, understand this, a man will peek out at the width of his base. In other words... You will only go as far in life as your education and your experiences take you. A man will peek out at the width of his base. And my dad encouraged me to stay in school and to go to college and get my degree and go on to seminary. He said, Jason, God will open up far more doors if you pursue knowledge than if you drop out of high school. And I'll tell you something, friends. God has opened up so many doors for me in my life because I followed my dad's wisdom. I stayed in school. I got those degrees. I wouldn't be standing here today as your pastor had I never gone to seminary. It's just a fact of the matter. A man will peek out at the width of his base. And Solomon says here there's value in pursuing wisdom in this world. In fact, he says there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. And of course, I'm sure we all know non-Christians even who possess this kind of wisdom. Okay, there is a wisdom available to the world. But I want you to notice Solomon's ultimate conclusion. Verses 14 through 16, Solomon goes on and he says, And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said to my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon says, look it, you can attain all the wisdom you want, but at the end of the day... You're just going to be a smart guy who dies just like the fool who dies. We all die. So what does it all amount to? It's very interesting. I had a great aunt, Margaret Perry, who was an atheist her entire life. She was a very brilliant woman. She had earned a PhD in literature. She taught her whole career at the University of Chicago, and she was proud of her knowledge. She was proud of her degrees and her status in the world. She was proud of her atheism. She was an early, hardcore, militant, progressive feminist. And she wanted nothing to do with God or the Bible or the gospel of Jesus Christ. In her whole life, she resisted our family's attempts to share Christ with her because she was proud of how smart she was. But you want to know something? A week before she died, my father had the joy of leading her 
to faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what it was that changed the tide for her? She began to realize that with all of her wisdom, she was going to die just like the fool. We all face the reality of our own mortality. So Solomon recognizes that pleasure doesn't fulfill, it's a dead end. Wisdom, knowledge doesn't fulfill, that's a dead end. So where does he turn next? He turns down the road to riches. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Friends, what's Solomon's assessment of the road to riches? He says here, you spend your life toiling, stressed out with sleepless nights, only to leave everything you work for to someone else. And not just that, it's likely the one you leave it to will be a fool and he'll lose everything. Friends, do you want to know that statistics prove this point out? Do you know statistics reveal that in 60% of cases of inherited wealth, that wealth will be lost by the second generation? In 90% of cases, all of that inherited wealth will be lost by the third generation. You work your whole life, you toil, you wrestle, you're restless at night, you can't sleep, you're stressed out about your job, and in the end you leave it all to a fool who loses it anyway. It's all vanity. So in the end, having pursued the best pleasures this world has to offer, having attained the heights of worldly wisdom, having climbed the ladder of worldly success, what is Solomon's conclusion? Chasing after wind. This passage reminded me of an interview I saw a few years ago with Tom Brady. After he had won his third Super Bowl, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes. Brady was asked in this interview if he had achieved all his life's dreams. Brady answered, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And then the interviewer asked, well, what's the answer? And Tom Brady just shook his head and said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. The greatest quarterback of all time. More Super Bowls than anyone. Millions of dollars. Homes around the world. Married to a supermodel. By the world's standards, this guy has it all. And yet he says, there's got to be more than this. 
Friends, the answer Brady's looking for can be found in the verdict reached by Solomon after all his pursuits. If all the best hopes and promises of this world can't lead us to joy, there must be something greater, something beyond this world, something that will truly satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And what was Solomon's verdict? Solomon says there's only one way. There's only one way to joy. Look at Ecclesiastes 2, 24 through 26. Here, the whole tenor of this chapter changes. Solomon says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Solomon says, look, if you know God, if you're walking with God, one day you're going to die and you're going to experience eternal joy in heaven. But if you're living this life apart from God, you're going to spend your whole life working and you know what? At the end of the day, you're going to get nothing. And the people who are enjoying the eternal treasures in heaven will have everything. Verse 25 is the key in this whole passage. Solomon says, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? See, Solomon came to recognize that all the pleasures of this world are vanity apart from a relationship with our creator. But a relationship with our creator changes everything. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 6.33 where Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these things will be added unto you. Now Jesus wasn't promising here health, wealth, and prosperity, but what he was promising, friends, is that true joy and true satisfaction and true fulfillment in this world comes when we put him first and pursue him first. And then we find satisfaction both in him and in the stuff of this world. I remember when I was a senior at Bethel College at one of our chapel services, Pastor Dave Johnson from Church of the Open Door was sharing a challenge with us and he said this, climb the ladder of success, but make sure it's leaning against the right wall. Friends, there's nothing wrong with pursuing success and working hard and gaining wealth and status in this world. But friends, pursue that stuff with the right foundation. Pursue that stuff with the right motivation for the sake of the kingdom. See, as verse 26 says, when we put God first, that's when we discover true wisdom and true knowledge and true joy. Not only in God, but in the many blessings of this world that he's given us. See, understand this, friends. The stuff of this world is only vanity when it's pursued as an end in itself. Pursuing joy in the stuff of this world, it's like playing with those Russian dolls, right? You open one up, and, and what do you find? It's hollow, it's empty, but there's another one. So I open that one up, and oh no, this one's hollow and empty too, but I open the next one up, and they all, they're all hollow and empty, and they just lead to more and more and more. 
And as we all know, pursuing the idols of this world never satisfy. But when we recognize the pleasures of this world and the pursuit of knowledge in this world and the ability to work and be productive in this world as gifts from God, and we enjoy all these things according to his design, and then we worship him for these gifts, friends, that is where true joy is found. See, understand this. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is the creator of joy. And all of these things that Solomon pursued joy in, the things of the world, laughter, recreation, sex, knowledge, work, rewards for his labor. Friends, all of these things God created. God made these things. And each of them takes on new meaning and a heightened sense of joy and significance when we recognize these things as gifts from God to be used and experienced according to his design. And then we praise him for the many blessings he gives us in these things. And in doing that, we give him glory. And he is pleased and we are satisfied because our true joy comes in our creator and his many blessings. Friends, Solomon's wisdom here today is a message that our culture needs to hear now more than ever. In a world looking for joy in all the wrong places, in a country where deaths of despair are skyrocketing, people need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They need to know, as we saw last week in John 1, verse 4, that in him, in Jesus, is life. And his life is the light of men. True joy, friends, is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you discovered the fullness of joy that comes from knowing Jesus? By putting him first in your life, pursuing him first in your life, and then recognizing that all of the blessings in this world are simply gifts from his hand. That's where true joy is found. If you haven't experienced true joy in Jesus, friends, what on earth are you waiting for? Put your hope in him. Turn to him this morning. Confess your rebellion against him and the sins that you've been pursuing, looking for joy, which are empty, hollow, false idols, and ask him to lead you into new life. And he'll give you that new life. And friends, if you're here this morning and you have found the joy that comes from walking with Jesus, knowing Jesus, friends, if that's where you're at this morning, where most of you are there this morning, you believe that, you know that. Here's the deal. You have a responsibility now to share that good news with others. We can't keep that joy to ourselves. There is a world dying of despair outside these walls today. And they need to know that there's hope. There's something more than a few more dollars in the bank account or another football game or another pornographic image, or another sex partner, or another bottle of alcohol, and another party. There's something more. And his name is Jesus. And he truly satisfies. Let's close in prayer today. Heavenly Father,
we thank you so much for the wisdom of Solomon. And God, I pray that we learn from his pursuits of joy in the things of this world. God, may we not make the same mistakes, but may we hear his wisdom and recognize it as truth from your hand, Lord. Truth to lead us and guide us to the path that leads to true joy, true fulfillment, true life, which is found only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I pray that each person here today would embrace that truth and know that truth and go out into this world living and proclaiming that truth as bright light shining radiantly the joy that is found in Jesus. God, help us to be your ambassadors in this world, proclaiming the good news to a world lost in despair. We thank you, Jesus, for your amazing grace. We thank you for the hope that's found in you, for the fullness of joy that you offer us. We praise your name, Jesus' name, amen.